And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. Race is on, and McLaren got in on the 2022 act by launching its new car, the McLaren Mercedes MCL 36, in an event at its MTC headquarters in Woking. But is its striking new car good enough to fight for wins? And why has it decided to flip F1 orthodoxy on its head by changing to pull rod front suspension and push rod rear suspension? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. Well, Scott, like me, you were at MTC today for this launch. We were very positive about what Aston did yesterday. What did you make of McLaren in comparison? Yeah, very good. Um, I, I'm, I'm scratching my head briefly. I'm drawing a bit of a blank, but I don't think I've ever seen a um, a car launch before anyone else. Um, that was a, a nice touch from from McLaren to do a, a media reveal. So we got to go down to to Woking. We we, we saw the car. They, they they did a presentation. I guess it was useful for them. It was a bit of a, a dry run, a rehearsal for the for the live show later in the evening. Um, and then obviously we got to speak to the key players, the drivers, team boss Andreas Seidel, the car's technical director James Key, and Zach Brown, McLaren Racing CEO. So yeah, absolutely brilliant. This one, this one edges. Aston Martin by a, a new narrow nose because there was actually a real physical event and we got to go and see the car. And I know, Ed, that you're a massive fan of being able to see a car in 3D. Yeah, it's just nice, particularly when it's a new one, to actually sit there and just look at it properly. And it does look different when it's in, there in three dimensions, obviously. And you can just understand how things work a little bit more or 
perhaps I should say I can pretend to convince myself that I understand things a, a little bit more. But yeah, you, you just become familiar with a, a slightly different type of car, and it won't be long before these cars look completely normal, but they're still quite eye-catching now. But Gary, you've been on the other side of plenty of launches with the likes of me asking you stupid questions. I guess that's not so different to what you're going through uh, these days, but obviously it must be nice to be in your position and to, to launch a new car like this, particularly one for, for new rules and show off all your clever ideas. Is it is it a good feeling or is there a bit of nervousness or just irritation that you're having to do it at all when you could be doing real work? Oh, there's always a bit of nervousness because, you know, it's, it's all about the performance of the car. But, you know, p- having people see the car for the first time is uh, quite a, a novelty, I suppose you might call it. And going way back to the Jordan 191, um, we had a very minim- minimalist press release in, a, in a, one of the workshops at Silverstone. And uh, the big question was the front wing. And everybody was saying, oh, you know, because the, the front wing got smaller in the, in the center section. And everybody was saying... Oh, you know that. You know, is that strong enough? And I said, "Well, I don't know, but I think so." And I stepped on it, you know, and uh, one on one side of it, just to show them that it was um, strong enough. So you always got that sort of uh, people questioning what you've done for various different reasons. It's got so sort of technical nowadays. I suppose it's all about the the dot and the eyes and cross and the T's and all these things. But you know, it's it's still a very very tense sort of period because this is the first visual thing uh that people will see and uh, you know the thing about james key uh he's been looking at this car for you know for a year nearly i suppose he's seen it in his mind or he should have seen it in his mind that's what i always used to say to eddie jordan you know he eddie would say oh yeah that looks really good really really pleased you must be really happy and i said well yeah but i've been i've been looking at it for a long time so you know you, you visually see the car for much much longer than anybody else so this is the first time for McLaren other people have seen it, like yourself, Ed, and uh, time to comment on it. Yeah, and it's very good of them to show the car properly and do the launch. I agree this one does just slightly edge ahead of Aston Martin, given that they did have a, a physical event. But yeah, plenty to talk about with this car. It is a real car as well, which is a, always a bonus, given what we've we've had in the past. So let's get a little bit into the detail, Gary. The first thing, if we look at the mechanical side, they've gone to pull rod front suspension, and push rod rear suspension, which is kind of inverting certainly where they were last year, and in fact where everyone pretty much has been for the past few years. So can you explain what that means and what the implications are? Well, I suppose the first thing is about the opportunity. Um, whenever we had the 13-inch rims um, and you wanted to have a high, uh, lower, the lower wishbone to be as high up as possible with the chassis, you end up with, a, as I say, a very high wishbone um, some teams like Mercedes uh, and Toro Rosso brought the upper pickup, outer pickup point up around the outside of the rim um, to get some sort of sensible geometry on the on the tyre. But really, interestingly, putting the pull rod on, on last year's car with the high chassis, the small rims meant that the, the pull rod angle was was really um, very very acute relative to the top wishbone, which is the thing that operates it basically. Um, so the eighteen inch rims. And the slightly lower chassis in that area has helped get the, the right geometry on the on the components there. So mechanically, the loads are a bit less. Um, obviously, if the shallower the angle of the of the pull rod, the higher the load in it. To be honest, so that's given that opportunity now for it to be a lower loaded system, uh, which means it doesn't have to be as heavy as as strong. It doesn't have to be as heavy, um, and. 
it's one of those sort of things again with the regulation change so you can't alter the front ride height as much with steering lock there's no big advantage by having the push rod connected up to the bottom of the front upright so maybe last year's stuff when you put steering lock on the car the, the car would lower the front right height would lower itself um and because of the wishbone position you could actually also uh change the camber so it's a, it's a it's a whole group of things that comes at you to to get someone done that will be a benefit. I don't buy into the fact, and I'm not going against what James Key says because he knows more than me probably now. Um, I don't buy into the fact that it's for aerodynamic reasons because where the pull rod goes into the chassis at the bottom, again with the wishbone legs, that's the area where you want the, the best airflow possible for the leading edge of the diffuser. The outboard end near the wheel doesn't really matter because that's just going around the outside of the car and it's fairly turbulent anyway because of the uh, front wheel. So I would say that in my book, 99% of this change is mechanical because you can do. It lowers the center of gravity of the the, uh, complete inboard suspension system. Um, It's, you know, for me, it's a better solution. And also on their front suspension, the lower wishbone now, which normally would drive the push rod or the bottom of the upright would drive the push rod, but on the system they have now, it looks it's very difficult to tell, but it looks the way the linkages are there, that it's it's not a, a sort of A-frame wishbone. It's a, a two independent links. And when you have that, you can have them working on the outboard end. You can have them working on eccentric bearings. So basically, when you put steering lock on, you do reduce the camber because you need camber on the car for high speed to withstand the forces and the lateral forces on the tyre, which tries to pull the tyre off the rim, basically. But at low speed, those, those forces are a lot less. So you want a lot less camber on it. So, um, you know, there's, there's many, many reasons for doing this, and you have to buy into all of them. But I don't, I don't think that aerodynamics are, is the prime mover. I think it's mechanical. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's always a combination of the two, isn't it? Yeah, James Key, when Scott, you asked him about, it did say at the front it was down to the, the aero decisions, but... You never know. There could also be uh, be some some hidden reasons, couldn't there, for for why you, why they've done this? Well, yeah, absolutely. Especially as it's a sort of uh, I don't know if it's it's a gamble because obviously we know that um, we know that it's unconventional. But how much of a gamble it is is going to play out over the next seven, eight, nine days when we see how many other teams have gone down this route. If they are completely on their own, it's like James said. He said they've either got it really, really right or and then he just sort of trailed off and smiled. <laughs> so it's one of those where he will obviously, they will have their justifications. They are confident that it will behave the way they expect it to behave. But And he also says they've taken into consideration and are aware of the, the issues that it had when that style of suspension was most recently used, which would have been uh, a few years ago now. Um, so let's see, because... Regardless of whether you're doing it primarily for benefit one or benefit two, it being such a massive and fundamental element means that it can't it it, it can't only be like oh we're going to get like this one specific gain out of it, can it? Because because it's just going to have it's going to be intrinsic to the to, to to the whole thing. And if it and if it causes a problem where McLaren is one is the only team or one of only two or three teams that has this solution, and it proves to be the wrong solution. Well then, well they're they're stuck, aren't they? I they're not. I can't see them. 
I can't see them overhauling it and bringing out a MCL 36B halfway through the year with a completely different style of suspension. Yeah, that would be pretty uh, pretty drastic. But Gary, you, you talked about why pull rod at the front was quite a logical move even before we saw any any cars. So no surprise to see that. But you you also, for good reasons, thought the pull rod at the rear was, was going to stay because there was no specific reason to change it. I think you said that change at the rear confused you uh, a little. James Key didn't give as clear a reasoning on the on the rear change as he did on the front <laughs> so what do you what do you make of that no i think he was talking about um you know the change was because they were shortening the gearbox um because of the limitation on the wheelbase the wheelbase is now maximum 3.6 meters which is a massive length of car anyway um now you, you can't if they had a, a car that was longer than 3.6 last year which i i don't know what it was but i i really would be surprised if it was that much longer than that then what they're doing is moving the um trying to close the engine and gearbox or the engine and rear axle up because they want to move the weight distribution now the weight distribution is controlled within about one percent in the regulations again because they don't want somebody finding a solution that would mean all the other cars were scrap um but i would be surprised if they're if they're moving it that much that they couldn't get the, the pull rod suspension into the front of the gearbox the way it has been now you know a new car is a new car. And we hear all these people saying, you know, we're not using one part from the old car. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. At the end of the day, if you've got something that works well, recognize it and leave it alone. And put all your efforts and your time into something else that isn't working so well. Um, so I, I, I cannot fathom out why the pull rod rear suspension still wouldn't be the best solution on the back of the car. Um, because we've still got a diffuser. We've still got, you know, we want the narrow bodywork at the back. We want airflow over the top of the diffuser surface floor. You know, everything is exactly the same. It's just the underfloor will be more powerful. So you still want the same things. Whenever we had the, uh, go back to the double diffusers, um, you know, the, the pull rod suspension, because of the layout of it then, compromised quite a few teams as far as getting the double diffuser to work correctly. But this isn't a double diffuser. This isn't, you know, one diffuser on top of another one. This is actually the real diffuser. So I, I don't I don't really understand that compromise. I, I feel that the mechanical advantage of the center of gravity um, is good. The fact that it's hidden in all the, the mechanical stuff's hidden inside the gearbox means that the airflow from the radiators, you can be a little bit more compact. If you have it mounted, Again, you probably have it mounted all inside the top of the gearbox. Uh, you won't make it. You won't make the cross section bigger at the gearbox because of the uh, the suspension being mounted there. But I, I see it all as sort of slightly negative compromise, and uh, I don't. I can't see the positive part of it. I can on the front, but I can't on the rear. And obviously, because these are so visual and obvious, these will be things people talk about. I don't think it'll come as a surprise to see from other teams to see that there's a pull-rod front suspension or push-rod rear suspension. These are both well-known designs. They're not new. It's more just the fact they've they've gone to them as a surprise. But if anyone wanted to change, how practical would it be? I presume front, in real terms, would be easy enough but wouldn't necessarily work aero-wise. Rear would be a completely different kettle of fish, though, wouldn't it? That would be a big, big job. Well, I think both are a big job. I think you'd, you'd really have to just do the best you can with it. Now, you know, whenever we talk about one being right and one being wrong such a fine line because some circuits it'll be okay um i i don't see a negative um 
with a push rod front or a pull rod front. I, I can't see any negatives. I can see a little bit of a positive for the pull rod, um, just in the fact of center of gravity and, and getting all the mechanical components down there out of the way. Um, and again, same on the on the rear. I see a, a positive for the for the uh, pull rod suspension. But I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's any big difference. I, I wouldn't get to the point where I'd say, oh, I've got to change my car completely because I've got a pull rod suspension and everybody else has a push rod and they're all beating us. There's, there's other reasons for them beating you. So, uh, yeah, we shouldn't just jump in and say you can point your finger at one thing and that's the uh, the bit that makes the car work. As I say, I, from my point of view, it's the sum of everything. And they've obviously, if they've optimized their car around the stuff they've got on it, then they'll be doing a pretty good job. You know, uh, I wouldn't get excited about complete change. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 car reveal series. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and drive ongoing human-led progress. Aramco, powered by Howe. What's the plan in terms of McLaren running? They've got a car... We've seen it. So are they going to do a, a shakedown? They are planning to. Uh, they've got a filming day planned. Uh, he's uh, Andreas Seidel said just before the Barcelona test. So I don't know if that's going to be um, in Spain in the days leading up to it or if they're going to do a run at, uh, at Silverstone, for example, let's say next week before the car uh, disappears. But Seidel said that there's still some challenges that they need to overcome to be ready for that. So it felt to me like that meant a shakedown is not imminent. We know... Um, Obviously, Aston hit the track today. It doesn't feel like McLaren's at that stage yet, um, but they do want to run it. Uh, they do want to run it on track. James Key made a point of saying that they are proud that they were able to put a real car out for people to see today. Obviously, shrouded in a little bit of mystery, some parts hidden. Um, I quite excitedly, after the media reveal, was saying to you, Ed, that I was absolutely convinced I saw some kind of like plastic cover or or some kind of cover or shroud over the the rear of the floor because it just looked so weird on that, that physical car. Uh, and then we got the renders and that, there's nothing like that on the renders, but the floor's very simple. And I'm like, well, I've seen two different versions here. Neither of them look like a real thing. So something's going on. But you've now seen a photo, I think, Ed, haven't you, of what I was talking about at the launch with the, with the, with the physical thing. So, yeah, I think I feel like... I don't. I don't feel like it was the same as Aston Martin, where I, I, I would imagine there might be a couple of changes, but I do feel like the car that Aston Martin presented at their physical unveiling was the was of the sort that then just gets chucked in the back of a truck, taken to Silverstone, and and, and rolls out. It, it, it did feel very much like that with the AMR twenty two. It feels like the MCL thirty six has a few bits that even need to be taken off or put on before it actually runs on track. Well, that's in the finest tradition of launches, isn't it? And actually, Gary mentioned it of the floor. The floor is going to be a really key area, isn't it? It was a key area last year, but it's, it's even more of a key area if you can be such a thing. Are you expecting to see some quite weird and wonderful treatments in terms of the floor? If you look at the one the McLaren launched with, there's it gets quite interesting at the back and there's sort of that change of, of the height in the, in the middle. So there's a few details on it, but we also know that that's hiding some more detail or it might just be a, a kind of bodged together part because often you have bits and pieces on the car that aren't quite proper <laughs> at this stage. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see changes in it. Uh, the, the big thing is really the, the area that we, we can't really see, to be honest, is these splitters that are in the, uh, the leading edge of the floor. 
they're very, very powerful devices. Um, and because the floor is quite high at the front, um, to, to try to bring in a good volume of airflow into the diffuser, which is better for reducing the turbulence in that airflow, um, those splitters are going to be a very important part of it. So there's there's detailed changes that can happen into it. The, the regulations themselves dictate the sort of the floor shape pretty well because they have to. If you're going to try and focus on a an underfloor geometry that will be uh, that will work in turbulence and will generate downforce, then you can't leave it open to the to the wide world. You have to you have to generate something that will give you a profile, and then it's the splitters that will manage that flow uh and so i think that theory will see quite big changes and i don't think we'll see people rushing about with new floors too quickly there will be detailed changes i'm sure um and it's the area in front of the rear tires is is again it's a bit like last year they've got the, the corners cut the outside cut off the floor you know you can't have as much ceiling in front of that rear tire so that area i'm trying to get all that stuff that's on the brake that's working to help seal that area is, is again going to be quite important. So there's lots of areas for development, uh, and it's going to be detailed development. Though it's not going to be any you know, major revolution, I don't think. Um, so we will see changes, and we will see cars, as you say, Scott, that are got things covered on them, so you can't see them until we get to the track. But then that's why we go to Barcelona to try to uh, see them in a real, a real world and comment on them. We can only comment on the pictures we've got. We can't really comment on anything else. We, we haven't got the crystal ball. So it's, um, yeah, I think the car looks very good. I think it's, you know, it's exciting. I think the, fr- the detail at the front of the, the side pod, the the length of those splitters that sort of separate the um, the wake of the front tyre and the entry into the side pod, it's quite different from the Aston Martin. They've also got some nice little turning veins on the inside of the front brake. That's sort of, Tucking the airflow back into the into the uh, back of the contact patch of the tire because that's a very good low pressure area. So if you can pull airflow into there, it's taking away some of the turbulence. There's a there's a lot of good detail on the car, but those details again um, are small. People can adapt to them, and also McLaren can will change them. So it's going to be constant development up until we you know the sort of lights go out for uh, Bahrain, I think. I'm going to chime in and steal Ed's job because I have a question for you, Gary, actually, now that we've had back-to-back, now that we've had back-to-back launches with, with real cars and, yeah, even though some of the stuff has been hidden, I was wondering, because I noticed today having a real car in front of me that my eyes were now starting to be drawn to specific areas of the car because I guess we're, we're looking for trends. So now that we've had the two... I mean, is it as obvious as now we're just going to start, we're going to be looking at the side pods and we're going to be looking at, at the, the, the Coke bottle area. Is, is that all it's limited to or are you looking at other stuff now that we're starting to see more of the real thing? Well, obviously, you know, the, the, the detail on the side pod between the Aston Martin and the McLaren is, is very visual. And that's what, as you say, that's what draws your eye in. Um, it's a, quite a different way of doing doing what you're trying to achieve. But the, the real objective is to get as much airflow as you can over the top of the diffuser surface um, and to the back of the car. But you, you can't you can't push that air there. What you're actually doing is opening up from behind from the back going forward. So basically, there's a, a low pressure area at the back of the car at the end of the diffuser um, and in between the rear wheels. So you're trying to get that low pressure area to pull as much air through the front of the car to the back as possible. 
And the only way you can do that is open it up. Now, Aston Martin have chosen to do the massively undercut side pods. So they've got a big venturi as such between the the radiator flow, I suppose you might call it, on the top of the floor. They've got a, a big undercut there. So the, the, the side pod itself overhangs the floor, but it's still got airflow coming through that gap. Whereas, as we've seen with Haas and we've seen now with, um, with McLaren, they've gone the other route. They're trying to bring the airflow over the top and, and around the side of the the biggest part of the side pod, which is the radiator. It's, at the end, end of the day, the end result at the sort of rear axle line is very similar, and that's the part that matters. The, the, across the rear axle, getting the airflow through there that you can, is maximum airflow through there you can, is the most critical part of it. So how you get to that is about optimizing the, the philosophy, I suppose, or the concept you have. But it, there's no big difference in it. If you took a, a section through the rear axle of those two cars, the difference is small. The Aston Martin, in my opinion, might be a little bit better, mainly because they've got the louvers out of the uh, the top of the side pods. Uh, so they don't have as big a radiator exit to the back. The radiator exit, obviously, you know, if you take air in the radiator intake, put it through a radiator, you've beaten the living daylights out of it. So it's lost all its energy. It's, it comes out of the... Of the um, the exits at very low speed. It just it just can't maintain its speed, and it's, it's speed of airflow that gives you downforce. So, you've um, everything you try to do is just about having a concept and then trying to optimize it in the best way possible. And they're very different, but the end result at the rear axle is not not that much different. Mentioning the the cooling, it's interesting to to see that there are such dramatically different approaches between Aston Martin and and, and McLaren. Is it with the McLaren more about trying to keep all of that away from the uh, the rest of the airflow, if if you like? Because looking at the the sort of cooling louvers in the Aston Martin, it seems that that airflow, as you just said yesterday, is sort of charging out towards the beam wing area. Whereas maybe with the McLaren, it's a little bit higher. Is, is that is it kind of as simple as that, or are are cooling airflows a little bit more complicated? Well, they are a bit more complicated, but you know the only the only reason you get flow through the radiator is because you've got high pressure at the inlet and low pressure at the exit, and that way you suck the airflow through the radiator and, and uh, cool the car. So you you search around the car to find your best low, less, low pressure area for the exits, um, and you have to find the best low pressure area with the minimum negative, negative downforce loss, or the minimum downforce loss. So the rules, the way they've done them, have allowed for this year have allowed you to have louvers in the top bodywork. Now, if you can notice the, the louvers in the top bodywork of the Aston, I mean, they start the ones I've seen and the ones that I think they will use, they start quite long, the louvers at the front, and they get smaller as you go rearward. And you know, that's a logical solution because you just pull a little bit of airflow out of each, each one of those across that top surface. So you drop the top surface down and you don't want to accelerate the air over the top of the side pod because that will give you lift on the top surface. So if you've got holes or the louvers in there, the slots in there, instead of giving you lift on the top surface, you end up getting pulling the hot air out. Now, as long as you've managed that correctly before it gets to the sort of beam wing and the rear wing, you've, I think you've done a good job. You probably have found cooling for minimum loss. I think that with the philosophy that uh, McLaren have, they haven't changed their philosophy. They're still doing it at the rear. 
which was last year's regulations. You had to, you didn't allow, you weren't allowed the louvers in the top body work. Um, so again, if I was jumping in both feet first, as I normally do, um, you know, I'd say the Aston Martin solution is, is not a bad one. You need the bulk, the way the Aston Martin is, you need the bulk of the side pod because there is a big undercut underneath the side pod. So you're pulling the flow, th- you're pulling the flow through underneath that part. So um, it's it's just going to be testing and try to sort of devise the best way possible. But as I say, if I was putting both feet into the the boiling water, it would be my, the Aston Martin solution would suit me a little bit better. Yeah, interesting to see how those two cars get on when they actually hit the track properly, or the Aston Martin was on track, of course, today, shaking down at Silverstone. But Scott, in general terms, McLaren are quietly upbeat, aren't they, as they perhaps should be after recent progress do you think this team's ready now to produce a car that can really compete at the front or do you agree with their argument that until they've got the wind tunnel up and running and it won't be until 2024 that they have a car that's designed using that wind tunnel throughout the whole process that they say that they'll be on level footing with it with the absolute top teams in f1 yeah i think it would be silly to think that um that they that they can go t- absolutely toe to toe with Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari because that infrastructure deficit exists and they they wouldn't be building an, a new wind tunnel and spending loads of money on one if they didn't think that there was going to be a tangible uh, improvement in the the output as as a result so therefore they were operating at a a lower a lower ceiling of course what's important is that McLaren does seem to be becoming an organization that is at least going to get closer and closer to 100% of its own potential and I don't imagine the differences are huge because we know that McLaren has built good cars over the last couple of seasons so if you say that Mercedes and Red Bull can produce 100% of what's possible from a Formula 1 car to the 2022 regulations and McLaren can only produce 98% of that because of the infrastructure deficit McLaren's job is to to get that 98%. That that's all McLaren can do. But and then if Mercedes and Red Bull mess up and fall short, that's where the opportunity for McLaren to 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 nip ahead of them exists. It's it's they they ultimately have to rely on the others doing a slightly worse job with their with the tools at their disposal. But having said that, I still expect good things of this car because first of all this is the first proper what I would consider first proper James Key McLaren, because we know that he came in early 2019. That car didn't touch that. The 2020 car is already well in development and is something that I'm sure he had an important hand in, but it's still an evolution of an existing concept effectively. And then obviously 2021 is a rollover from 2020 with the focus on adapting for the Mercedes engine. So, James has done a fantastic job there. I think we can all agree that he has been good for the technical structure and technical organisation at McLaren. But has he really got stuck into a full McLaren yet? No. The the 2022 car is that. And the 22 car is also the product of this much better, more harmonious culture of working that McLaren has been building for the last few years. And as this is the first new complete rule set that they that this organization this improved organization has been able to work towards 
I think it's absolutely reasonable to expect more from them with this car than the last couple of years. So I do absolutely expect McLaren to do a very good job, and I think we should hold them to very high standards. But I don't think we should be saying, oh, McLaren have really dropped a ball here if they're not out there beating Mercedes and Red Bull. Unless, obviously, Mercedes and Red Bull have done such a bad job that they're down in ninth and 10th, in which case McLaren should be beating them. <laughs> yeah, that's called others beating themselves. But mention of James Key there. Obviously, Gary, James Key is another person that you've worked with uh, back in Formula One days. I think you were at Jordan when he first came into F1. And he was actually on the race engineering side, not initially, but he's he's not kind of an aerodynamics background technical director, as a lot of them are. He's a, a race engineering background, although the lines are blurred on that. Adrian Newey was a very good race engineer as well as a, a crack aerodynamicist. But do you see any James Key traits, if there can be such a thing in this car? Do you see any of kind of his mindset and the, the clarity of thinking that has led to some of the decisions that have, have been made? I, I think James is is quite keen on the sort of vehicle dynamics, you know, the the um, suspension side of things. As a, you know, he tries to get a good understanding of everything, which is quite important because everything has to work together. But I think James's sort of best trait is the fact that he tries, to, he does actually try to get everything working together. It's easy to sort of say about it, but it's actually quite difficult to do it. I've been sort of, had a few chats with various companies through the years and even working for it, you know, in it myself with our own, with Jordan and with Stuart, you know, you'll get, it's very, very difficult to find the problem whenever you've got a problem. I remember doing a little bit of work with uh, the guys at Honda um, before Braun took over and, you know, every, every, every corner you turned, they wanted to blame each other. Nobody was taking it as a whole, a whole unit and trying to make it understandable and, and all work together. And I think James has got that, that attribute he he will try to balance everything out and we all know that aerodynamics are the the major thing on, on any car for just getting the total grip out of the car but you can't abuse all the other stuff so i think that's one of the th- things you see with james and i think this is where some of the suspension stuff comes from you know he does think about that stuff whereas a lot of other teams will just say right it's got to go here because aerodynamically it's better let's find the solution to to the suspension geometry, the suspension suspension function, but you know aerodynamics rule the wrist. Whereas there's there's a better balance to be had there somewhere, and I think that's as I say that's where you see James's stamp a little bit better on what we're seeing. It's a, an overall package as opposed to three or four different packages of all good stuff coming together. It's a it's an overall package of good stuff. So it's, it, you know it's so difficult with these regulation changes to actually pinpoint what will be the, the best solution to any given problem. I really want to see Mercedes and, and Red Bull and see what they come up with, and Ferrari, to be honest, and see what they come up with. Because, you know, as you're saying there, Scott, with all the best will in the world, McLaren, if they all do the, the, the job correctly, McLaren is not going to beat Mercedes and, and Red Bull at this point in time. Last year, they started the season and they were... They were competitive and running around in third, you know, third place as such, um, and then they got overtaken by Ferrari because Ferrari came on quite strong in the second half of the season. So it's the same deal. I think you know, if all things were equal, it's still going to be that Mercedes Red Bull, and then two or three other teams coming up behind them, and uh, you know, it's going to be the one that gets on top of that all. It's going to be important, and it could be McLaren, it could be Ferrari, it could be Alpine. Could be Aston Martin, could be, you know, 
it could be any of them, to be honest. But we won't know that until the, uh, they all start testing. That's the joy of this time of year, isn't it? It's all hopes and expectations, and we get a new car every few days, and we're going to have plenty more new cars next week, including the Mercedes and the Ferrari that you're looking forward to seeing. Thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell, for your insight. Lots to read on the race website, race.com. And don't forget the hyphen, including Gary's in-depth analysis of the McLaren, which is a must-read. Do also check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s. And also, if video's your thing, head to our YouTube channel. Alpha Tari is the next launch up on Monday. So join us then for everything you need to know about the AT03. Thanks for listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series.